Hi, this is Meg Wallitzer. I love hosting Selected Shorts. It's so wonderful to bring great stories read by brilliant performers into your home. What a gift to be able to transport you with beautiful words to different times and places, even for a little while. There's something magical about the communal experience of Selected Shorts. A whole new world comes alive between the storyteller and the audience. And for a little while, we're all together, going on a journey your ears can take you on that your eyes can't. So I know why I love it. You have your own reasons, no doubt. These days, it feels like our brains are like internet browsers with too many tabs open. It's hard to focus. If you're listening, it means you relish the chance to slow things down and be in the moment, to hear one voice telling one story that's bound to make you laugh or cry or both. Whatever keeps you coming back to shorts, I hope you'll help us keep the show healthy and thriving with a tax-deductible donation. So please visit SelectedShorts.org and make a donation today. And thank you. On this Selected Shorts, the Martians settle Canada, an unsettling mother-daughter story, and a medieval quest relocated to the suburbs. Join me for stories by Margaret Atwood and Neil Gaiman about finding the unexpected in life's journeys and destinations. I'm Meg Wallitzer, and you're listening to Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. Quests and travel are frequent themes in life and in writing. How far do we need to go to find what we want, whether that's something be an ephemeral pleasure, a lasting relationship, or a symbolic object? All three of these are featured in the stories on this program. In one, extraterrestrials invade, but their intentions are benign, and they wind up as changed as the world they enter. In another, a discarded daughter seeks love. And in the third, a knight travels a really long way to reclaim a relic. Let's face it, Canada has been the butt of many jokes. There's South Park's Blame Canada, insinuations of blandness, references to poutine and the word A. And this has to be the only nation ridiculed for its politeness. But we were amused by the archness on the subject offered up by one of Canada's most important and revered citizens, Margaret Atwood. Of course, she's the author of the devastating feminist dystopian fantasy, The Handmaid's Tale. But we at Shorts have always treasured her serious, wild humor in collections such as Moral Disorder and Stone Mattress. In The Martians Claim Canada, first published in Granta, everybody's favorite aliens get lost on their way to New York. Reader Jane Kaczmarek is best known for her work on Malcolm in the Middle. Her stage credits include Long Day's Journey and Tonight. Most recently, she's been featured in the horror series The Changeling. So get out your death ray, just in case, and settle down for The Martians Claim Canada. This is a story called The Martians Claim Canada. The Martians descend to Earth in their spaceship. They intend to go to New York. They want to see something called... A musical. But they get the directions mixed up, as many before them have done, and they end up in Canada instead, as many before them have also done. Specifically, they land on a chunk of rock in the boreal forest somewhere on the Laurentian Shield. There is no one around, or no one they might recognize as one. Where is here, says the first Martian, Where is always relative, says the second Martian. Where in relation to what? This approach is not helpful, says the third Martian. Luckily, there is a mushroom. It's summer, however brief. And these Martians know how to talk to mushrooms, which they resemble somewhat in their appearance. Where are we, they ask the mushroom. And the mushroom is an Amanita muscaria. Not entirely trustworthy, prone to illusions, and somewhat vain, due to having been worshipped as a deity in Siberia. But it is the only sentient being in evidence. Well, it depends on who you ask, says the mushroom, or how long their memory is. Mushrooms have long memories. Some of them are a thousand years old. However, they are not always very talkative. Oh, we've noticed that, said the Martians. And it depends on what you mean by here says the mushroom. Do you include the part underneath ground level? 
That's mostly what here means for mushrooms. Just the coordinates, says the first Martian. Just spell it out for us, and please don't quibble about whether mushrooms know how to spell. It's a figure of speech. Well, if the memory in question is short, this might be a place called Canada, says the Amanita. If your memory is longer, it might be a place called New France, more or less. Maybe, if those people got up this far. Longer than that, it might be a place called Turtle Island. And longer than that, it might be a place called Laurentide Ice Sheet. Longer than that, it might be a place called Laurentia, otherwise known as North American Creighton. Longer than that, it might be a place called Molten Blob of Magma. Some of these so-called places were good for mushrooms. Others, such as Ice Shield and Molten Blob, not so much. We can time travel, say the Martians. Which would be the best time slot for seeing a musical, in, in your opinion? Hmm. Maybe the Canada one, says the mushroom. Present tense. Definitely not the magma. Okay, okay, okay. But what is it, says the second Martian? The, 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 the Canada one. Well, many have asked, says the mushroom. Some say it's a country. But what is a country, says the third Martian. Ah, says the mushroom. You've heard of people? Well, yeah, sure, of course, says the Martian. Two legs, only two arms. Strange-looking heads, only two eyes. You need them to put on musicals. Okay, okay, a country is an idea people get into their brains, says the mushroom. Without people, there aren't any countries. Mushrooms don't bother with countries. Okay, that's a start, says the second Martian. What sort of idea in their brains? Well, you draw a line, you put up walls and gates and such, and you say some people can't come in and others can't go out. You say everything inside this country is a certain kind of thing, and that's how it's done inside the line you've drawn. You make laws, you have customs, language, two languages, 54 languages, it depends, and you have a flag which is a piece of cloth with some sort of pattern on it, and it waves around in the wind. Unlike mushrooms, we don't wave anything. Maybe you have national outfits. You have a special song you're supposed to sing. It's a ceremonial thing on special occasions. You're supposed to look really solemn and have deep emotions when you sing it. A song, says the Martian. That sounds very promising for musicals. At least it's a beginning. Okay, what about dances? says the second Martian. Musicals have dances. That's what those people need legs for. Well, some countries have national dances, others not, says the mushroom. Sometimes the countries have wars. That's when they cross each other's lines and gates and so forth, and they try to kill the people in the other country so they can get all of their stuff. Stuff. Toasters, says the mushroom. <laughs> Frying pans. Microwaves, all those anti-mushroom devices. <laughs> Other stuff, too, like land, gold, dead animals, trees, fish. Sometimes it's fish. I don't have much interest in fish myself, but some of these countries set a lot of store by fish. Other countries are more interested in diamonds, but you can be obsessed by both. Okay, okay. So this is countries in general, says the third Martian. What about this Canada country? Well, they value fish, says the mushroom. They got water on three sides, large, a lot of mushrooms, so not as many as once. What else would you like to know? Well, from what you tell us, says the first Martian, this Canada wasn't always there. Where, where, where did it come from? Well, once upon a time, says the mushroom, settling into his narrative mode, the Laurentide ice shield melted, and then there could be people. They had different languages. They were interested in fish, but also animals. They had outfits and laws and customs and so forth, and they had songs. Oh, yeah, these first people had a lot of songs, but they didn't have this flag thing. Well, we don't either, say the Martians. Well, maybe you had better get one says the mushroom. They come in handy. For what, say the Martians? Claiming, says the mushroom. I, 
I, I don't grasp your meaning, says the first Martian. What is claiming? In this specific instance, says the Amanita, some people with a flag sailed over the ocean blue, and when they got to this side, they stuck the flag in the ground. It was on a pole. And they said, I claim this land for France. Then they made a speech. They wrote things down. They said the whole place was theirs, including all the fish, the trees, the animals, and the people who were already there. And the mushrooms. Oh, we mushrooms. We didn't even get a say in it. Of course, nobody pays any attention to us unless, unless, well, unless they eat a poisonous sporocarp. What's a sporocarp, said the second Martian. Well, you're talking to one. So the people with the French flag set up this sort of sub-country and had wars with other people to the south who had done the same sort of claiming thing, you know, down there, but with a different flag. Oh, I see what you mean about flags, says the Martians. We should indeed concoct one for ourselves. But did they do musicals, these, these flag-waving people? <laughs> thing about people, says the mushroom, First, you have to have wars. Then, after a while, you turn your wars into musicals. It's, it's just how they are. <laughs> well, but what about the people who are already there, say the Martians, the ones without the flags? Didn't go so well for them, says the mushroom. To begin with, the new people were full of deadly spores. They didn't know it, but they were practically half-poisonous mushroom. And their spores poisoned a lot of the people who were already there. And they died. And then the ones who didn't die, well, you know, things were kind of friendly with them for a while because the new people wanted animals. They wanted to put animals on their heads and also sell them to make lots of money. And the old people knew how to catch the animals. So things went on like that for a while. On their heads, asked the Martians. Why? Don't ask me, says the mushroom. They liked it. What can I say? Then there was this war between the French flag ones and the English flag ones to see who can control the dead animals. And the French flag lost. And the English ones took over the dead animal trade. Then after a while, the animals got used up, and the English flag ones thought that instead they would get people to grow wheat. And they'd make money growing wheat instead. What is wheat, say the Martians? Well, it's anti-mushroom, I'll tell you that. Wheat pushed the mushrooms off a lot of land. You can't grow wheat and mushrooms at the same time and place. The original people got pushed off, too. Uh, that was once they were no longer useful to the new people for catching the animals, for helping with their wars, and for teaching the new people their knowledge about how to live here. Well, those new people don't sound very grateful, says the first Martian. That's how it is with people says the mushroom. If they want to take a thing that belongs to someone else, gratitude goes right out the window. So the new people made laws about the first people. And the first ones didn't get a say. Things got bad for them. Plus, a lot of poor people were shipped in one way or another. Orphans, refugees, persecuted religions, many different languages, even more than in the beginning. The ones shipped in were supposed to grow wheat. And things were bad for them, too, because they were so poor, they didn't have thick winter coats. And they had to eat parsnips. I think it was parsnips. And so it went on. Then after a while, some of the higher-ups decided to call the place Canada. I forgot which came first, the wheat or the name change. But it was still only kind of a sub-country. The big sporocarp was a king or a queen, I, who cares which, mushrooms don't do gender, who lived on the other side of the ocean. I'm confused, said the Martian. I'm alarmed, said the other Martian. I'm bored, says the first Martian. Let's get to the musicals. What is Canada the musical? There isn't one, said the mushroom. Because for a musical, you need to have a story. You need to decide how the story should come out. What's the finale? But in this Canada place, they have been arguing about the story for a lot of years. Is it the story of the French language people and how they didn't do so well for a while? Is it the story of forging ahead with the wheat? 
There was also something about a railroad there, but I, that's not very good for musicals. Is it a story about welcoming new kinds of people, or is it a story about not welcoming new kinds of people, especially those with different colored caps and scales? Canada, a land of opportunity, or Canada, land of unfair discrimination and exploitation? You could do both. I can see it's a puzzle, says the second Martian. Where to begin? <laughs> That's their problem, these Canadian people says the mushroom. They don't know where to begin. They don't know what to put in or what to leave out. No matter how you tell the story of Canada, someone is going to be offended. And then they all walk around saying, sorry, sorry, a lot. <laughs> well, they sound inhibited, says the third Martian. Maybe we should just try to find New York. They have more joie de vivre there. <laughs> they used to have, says the mushroom, once upon a time. They used to do a million musicals, mostly stories about themselves, or about cats. <laughs> None of them bothered to tell the story of mushrooms. Why isn't there a Mushrooms the Musical? There's a musical about everything else. Well, mushrooms don't sing and dance, to be fair, said the third Martian. Well, that's no excuse. Neither do lions. And look at the Lion King. We're trying to, said the Martians. We just don't know where it is. Where is New York, where the musicals are? Oh, it's, it's south of here, said the mushroom. Though I realize that's vague, but I think it's getting kind of hostile to Martians down there. So you know what? You might be a little safer here. Tell you what, why don't you make a flag, attach it to a pole, stick it in the ground, and claim Canada? Then you can be the one who decides what should be in Canada the Musical. And do me a favor, just put in some mushrooms. Amanita Muscaria is a melodious name for the heroine of a musical, don't you think? That's a really good idea, said the first Martian. Amanita, Amanita, how I love you, croons the mushroom. And then, and then, there's a great big modern dance number with the chorus dressed as decomposing vegetation. <laughs> no, I mean it's a good idea about the flag, says the first Martian and claiming Canada for the Martians. Then we can have musicals nonstop. Let's do it, says the Martian. We can back it up with our surefire drone-controlled ray guns. And so they do. <laughs> Jane Kaczmarek performed Margaret Atwood's The Martians Claim Canada. I'm Meg Wallitzer. I love the way this gently hilarious story makes playful use of an established trope. These Martians weren't out to get us in a war of the world sense. If you live in Canada, you understand that the country is not all one thing, and neither is Atwood's work. Both of them have various distinct parts. Provinces. Canada has 10 plus 3 territories. Atwood has a countless number. I've loved her writing since her first novel, The Edible Woman, and have marveled at all the different directions her fiction has taken. And I want to add that I've been invited to book festivals in Canada a number of times and have found a vibrant and generous writer's community there. And no one ever shunned me for my lack of interest in ice hockey or my deeply imperfect politeness. We take a stark turn in our next piece from a playful national history to a bleak but matter-of-fact tale about one young woman. It's by Leslie Neka Arima, whose work includes the collection What It Means When a Man Falls from the Sky. The story is called Options, but it appears as if there aren't any. The narrator is the unwanted daughter of a driven mother whose life is shaped by her parents' self-serving decisions. Options was commissioned for the selected shorts anthology Small Odysseys and was read by Zainab Jah. Jah is best known for her role in Eclipsed on Broadway. Film and television credits include Only Murders in the Building. In this reading, you feel that in telling the story, this woman is cleverly recreating the life she has been denied. Here's Zainab Jaw performing Options. Options. My mother was never one of those motherly types. From the moment I could eat solid food, she fed me her leftovers. Resentful, she had to feed me at all. And until I learned to cook for myself, my meals were decadent, if small, affairs, 
for she enjoyed fine things. My clothing was miniatured from outfits she'd long abandoned so that I was always well turned out. She was good on paper that way. My childhood friends were in awe of her and adored the soft, perfumed hands she smoothed admiringly over their fresh cornrows and used to pinch their growing cheeks. I've made a friend for you next door, she would say after we moved into the next Lagos high-rise, the next well-appointed house in Ashokoro, and I would make the dutiful trek to my new friend's home and out of her way. She never curtailed jealousy, too clever for that fleeting satisfaction. Instead, ingratiating herself to the neighborhood women, charming wives and treating their husbands with a pained courtesy that bordered on rudeness. Many a man lay down beside many a wife muttering about her coldness and the women murmured comfort and agreement, all the while swamped with a relief that made them amenable to taking me off her hands. It helped that I was well-mannered and quiet, a good baby who had grown into a good girl. Mothers who were not my mother loved me. Their children, uh, it could go either way. When I turned 13, my mother gave me a sex talk so detailed I could have opened a brothel. <laughs> that, along with overheard bits of adult conversations, Ashewo, Run's girl, harlot, tells me what she is. I don't know the word for the various uncles who have taken care of us, but I finally know why they do. And you might think I'd be resentful or angry or ashamed, but I am my mother's reluctant daughter, practical to my bones, and we both know that she's a difficult person to live with, sweet to everyone but me and men, yes, even the uncles, because a clever, beautiful woman in a country like Nigeria will be given many reasons to rage, and these reasons will almost always be handed to her by men. Reasons that come to include a pregnancy she never wanted and the laws that made it difficult and then impossible to get rid of. And parents left destitute after a war of men and their egos disguised as a bid for independence. And being sent to live with an uncle, like an uncle, uncle, blood relation and all and having him examine her body in the same way every man she will ever work for will examine her body, then eventually try to sample it, sometimes successfully, sometimes not, but the outcome is the same either way. Whether she leaves or gets thrown out, she will have to start over, knowing exactly how it will end, and it gets harder. She gets harder, until she is as cutting as a diamond, and through a series of fortunate events I'm never clear on, she discovers that because of her beauty or personality or a certain je ne sais whatever, there are men who will pay for the pleasure of being cut, figuratively, and she slices her way out of gropey office jobs to Akeji penthouses and refuses to let her daughter cramp her style. When I'm 16, she asks if I remember Uncle Moby, Ne, Jude, Amobi, Ejiofo. And I sought through my memories to the warmth of his friendly bearded face. He has asked to marry my mother and has secured visas for us to live with him in America. She is distracted as we pack. And for the first time in our lives, she is concerned about my needs in this place called L.A., which I later find out is not Los Angeles, where I might run into Michael Jackson, but Louisiana, where I will never, ever run into Michael Jackson. <laughs> At the airport, she steps out of line to take a phone call, leaving me with the envelope containing our papers in case I get to the front before she returns, in which case I am to go ahead and she will just have me paged. It isn't until the second to last final call for our flight that I realize she isn't coming with me, has never planned on coming with me, that Jude Amobi Ejiofo has been cheated out of a wife. And I, my mother's practical daughter, come to understand why a woman who bargains for a living with her body sends her daughter away, 
whether the reason is to protect her child or rid herself of competition. But it's not practicality that acquiesces me onto the first plane ride of my life. Not practicality that buckles my seatbelt and pours over the safety card. Not practicality that falters when I check the papers that my mother shoved at me to see that Jude Amobi Ejiofa has not, in fact, been cheated of a wife. It is not practicality that believes this is just a ruse to get me to America, that my mother wouldn't do such a thing to me. It is not practicality that steals me to the border agent's persistent probing questions, not practicality that dies under Jude Amobi Ejiofo's persistent probing, under the constellation of light reflected in the sweat beads on his forehead. I am driven by hope, that somewhere out there is a neutral state of being, a borderless territory where I am myself, not a daughter or wife or runs girl. Hope that across the Atlantic, far away from here, a woman will be handed fewer reasons to be angry. I cannot, but must, begin to tell you how wrong I was. Thank you. That was Zainab Jha performing Options by Leslie Neka Arima. I'm Meg Wallitzer. There's something especially heartrending about this story. Not only the mother's indifference, but the daughter's deadened acceptance to her fate. Tough mothers may be Arima's forte. We previously featured her story Light, which has a determined, though loving, mother. And the story is a nuanced example of quest and completion. Everything about this woman's life journey has been imposed on her, but the act of writing makes it her own. Mothers and daughters have often made for strong stories, sometimes because of the closeness between the characters, for better or worse. There was even a best-selling study of this topic in the 1970s called My Mother, Myself. But detachment, an umbilical cord cut with the sharpest knife and no looking back, is just as worthy of exploration as attachment. When we return, thrifting is all the rage, and the Holy Grail winds up in the hands of someone who isn't even looking for it. You're listening to Selected Shorts, recorded live in performance at Symphony Space in New York City and at other venues nationwide. Welcome back. This is Selected Shorts, where our greatest actors transport us through the magic of fiction, one short story at a time. I'm Meg Wallitzer. We're listening to stories about seeking one thing, but finding something else. However, if it's Selected Shorts you're seeking, there are no detours. Just head to our website, selectedshorts.org, for information about this show, past shows, and our podcast. You can find information on the Small Odysseys anthology, where Leslie Neka Arima's story appeared. We've heard two stories about traveling far in search of something and, in both cases, winding up with something else instead. A new planet and a new, if precarious, life. In our third tale, Neil Gaiman's Chivalry, the idea is reversed. There's no question about the object, but the setting is not what you'd expect. The very word quest conjures up the idea of long journeys toward the unattainable and ideas of honor and belief. The search for the Holy Grail is one of the benchmarks for this theme, but in Gaiman's hands we have a delicious culture clash. Just for starters, listen for the first line. So that's it. I don't really need to tell you anything else. What? I have to? It's the rules? Okay. So you remember the Crusades, right? Try as you might to not remember them? Well, along with all the terribleness was an implicit shopping list headed by the Holy Grail. And in chivalry, this object of every quest since the dawn of Christianity winds up on the mantelpiece of a sweet but quietly unyielding widow. And that's the premise of Gaiman's story. In his collection Smoke and Mirrors, he prefaces chivalry with the observation, 
I like to think of this story as a virus. Once you've read it, you may never be able to read the original story in the same way again. Gaiman is a creator popular in so many genres, no brief list of credits can do him justice. Works include American Gods, Coraline, and the Sandman comic series, which was recently adapted for Netflix. When we want polite but with a twist, we look to our friend and longtime reader, Christina Pickles, an Emmy nominee for her work on St. Elsewhere and Friends. Film credits include The Wedding Singer and Baz Luhrmann's Romeo and Juliet. Here she is with Neil Gaiman's Chivalry. Mrs. Whitaker found the Holy Grail. It was under a fur coat. Every Thursday afternoon, Mrs. Whitaker walked down to the post office to collect her pension, even though her legs were no longer what they were, and on the way back home, she'd stop in at the Oxfam shop and buy herself a little something. The Oxfam shop sold old clothes, knickknacks, oddments, bits and bobs, and large quantities of old paperbacks, all of them donations, second-hand flotsam, often the house clearances of the dead. All of the profits went to charity. The shop was staffed by volunteers. The volunteer on duty this afternoon was Marie, 17, slightly overweight, and dressed in a baggy mauve jumper that looked like she'd bought it from the shop. Marie sat by the till with a copy of Modern Woman magazine, filling out a Reveal Your Hidden Personality questionnaire. Every now and then she'd flip to the back of the magazine and check the relative points assigned to an A, B, or C answer before making up her mind how she'd respond to the question. <laughs> Mrs. Whitaker puttered about the shop. Hmm? Well, they still hadn't sold the stuffed cobra, she noted. It had been there for six months now, gathering dust, glass eyes gazing balefully at the clothes racks and the cabinet filled with chipped porcelain and chewed toys. Mrs. Whitaker patted its head as she passed by. She picked out a couple of Mills and Boone novels from a bookshelf, Her Thundering Soul and Her Turbulent Heart, a shilling each, and gave careful consideration to the empty bottle of Matus Rosé with a decorative lampshade on it before deciding she really didn't have anywhere to put it. She moved a rather threadbare fur coat which smelled badly of mothballs. Underneath it was a walking stick and a water-stained copy of Romance and Legend of Chivalry by A.R. Hope Moncrief, priced at five pence. Next to the book, on its side, was the Holy Grail. It had a little round paper sticker on the base and written on it in felt pen was the price, 30p. Mrs. Whitaker picked up the dusty silver goblet and appraised it through her thick spectacles. This is nice, she called to Marie. Marie shrugged. Look nice on the mantelpiece, Marie shrugged again. Mrs. Whitaker gave 50 pence to Marie, who gave her 10 pence change and a brown paper bag to put the books and the Holy Grail in. Then she went next door to the butcher's and bought herself a nice piece of liver. Then she went home. The inside of the goblet was thickly coated with a brownish-red dust. Mrs. Whitaker washed it out with great care, then left it to soak for an hour in warm water with a dash of vinegar added. Then she polished it with a metal polish until it gleamed, and she put it on the mantelpiece in her parlour, where it sat between a small, soulful China Basset hound and a photograph of her late husband Henry on the beach at Frinton in 1953. She'd been right. It did look nice. For dinner that evening, she had the liver fried in breadcrumbs with onions. It was very nice. The next morning was Friday. On alternate Fridays, Mrs. Whitaker and Mrs. Greenberg would visit each other. Today, it was Mrs. Greenberg's turn to visit Mrs. Whitaker. They sat in the parlor and ate macaroons and drank tea. Mrs. Whitaker took one sugar in her tea, but Mrs. Greenberg took sweetener, which she always carried in her handbag in a small plastic container. That's nice, said Mrs. Greenberg, pointing to the grail. What is it? It's the holy grail, said Mrs. Whitaker. <laughs> it's the cup that Jesus drank out of at the Last Supper. <laughs> Later, at the crucifixion, it caught his precious blood when the centurion's spear pierced his side. <laughs> Mrs. Greenberg sniffed. She was small and Jewish and didn't hold with unsanitary things. I wouldn't know about that, she said, but it's very nice. (laughs) 
Ah, Myron got one just like that when he won the swimming tournament, only it's got his name on the side. Is he still with that nice girl, the hairdresser, Bernice? Oh, yes, they're thinking of getting engaged, said Mrs. Greenberg. That's nice, said Mrs. Whitaker. She took another macaroon. Mrs. Greenberg baked her own macaroons and brought them out every alternate Friday, small, sweet, light brown biscuits with almonds on top. They talked about Myron and Bernice and Mrs. Whitaker's nephew, Ronald. She'd had no children. And about their friend, Mrs. Perkins, who was in the hospital with her hip, poor dear. At midday, Mrs. Greenberg went home and Mrs. Whitaker made herself cheese on toast for lunch and after lunch, Mrs. Whitaker took her pills, the white and the red and the little orange ones. The doorbell rang. Mrs. Whitaker answered the door. It was a young man with shoulder-length hair so fair it was almost white, wearing gleaming silver armor with a white surcoat. <laughs> Hello, he said. Hello, said Mrs. Whitaker. I'm on a quest, he said. <laughs> That's nice, said Mrs. Whitaker. <laughs> Can I come in, he said. Mrs. Whitaker shook her head. I'm sorry, I don't think so, she said. I'm on a quest for the Holy Grail, the young man said. Is it here? Have you got any identification? <laughs> She knew that it was unwise to let unidentified strangers into your home when you were elderly and living on your own. Handbags got emptied and worse than that. The young man went back down the garden path. His horse, a huge gray charger, big as a shire horse, its head high and its eyes intelligent, was tethered to Mrs. Whitaker's garden gate. The knight fumbled in the saddlebag and returned with a scroll. <laughs> it was signed by Arthur, King of all Britons and charged all persons of whatever rank or station to know that here was Galahad, knight of the table round, and that he was on a right high and noble quest. There was a drawing of the young man below that. It wasn't a bad likeness. <laughs> Mrs. Whitaker nodded. She'd been expecting a little card with a photograph on it, but this was far more impressive. <laughs> I suppose you'd better come in, she said. They went into her kitchen. She made Galahad a cup of tea, then she took him into the parlor. Galahad saw the grail on the mantelpiece and dropped to one knee. He put down the teacup carefully on the russet carpet. A shaft of light came through the net curtains and painted his awed face with golden sunlight and turned his hair into a silver halo. It is truly the sand grail, he said very quietly. He blinked his pale blue eyes three times very fast, as if he were blinking back tears. He lowered his head as if in silent prayer. Galahad stood up again and turned to Mrs. Whitaker, gracious lady, keeper of the holy of holies. Let me now depart this place with the blessed chalice, that my journeyings may be ended and my quest fulfilled. Sorry, said Mrs. Whitaker. <laughs> Galahad walked over to her and took her old hands in his. My quest is over, he said. The sand grail is finally within my reach. Mrs. Whitaker pursed her lips. Can you pick your teacup and saucer up, please, she said. Galahad picked up his teacup apologetically. No, I don't think so, said Mrs. Whitaker. I rather like it there. It's just right between the dog and the photograph of my Henry. Is it gold you need? Is that it, lady? I can bring you gold. No, said Mrs. Whitaker. I don't want any gold, thank you. I'm simply not interested. She ushered Galahad to the front door. Nice to meet you, she said. <laughs> His horse was leaning its head over a garden fence, nibbling her gladioli. Several of the neighborhood children were standing on the pavement watching it. Galahad took some sugar lumps from the saddlebag and showed the braver of the children how to feed their horse with their hands flat. The children giggled. One of the older girls stroked the horse's nose. Galahad swung himself up onto the horse in one fluid moment. Then the horse and the knight trotted off down Hawthorne Crescent. <laughs> Mrs. Whitaker watched them until they were out of sight, then sighed and went back inside. The weekend was quiet. On Saturday, Mrs. Whitaker took the bus into Maresfield to visit her nephew, Ronald, and his wife, Euphonia, and their daughters, Clarissa and Dillian. She took them a currant cake she'd baked herself. On Sunday morning, Mrs. Whitaker went to church. Her local church was St. James the Less. 
which was a little more, don't think of this as a church, think of it as a place where like-minded friends hang out and are joyful. Than Mrs. Whitaker felt entirely comfortable with, but she liked the vicar, the Reverend Bartholomew, when he wasn't actually playing the guitar. <laughs> After the service, she thought about mentioning to him that she had the Holy Grail in her front parlor, <laughs> but decided against it. On Monday morning, Mrs. Whitaker was working in the back garden. She had a small herb garden she was extremely proud of dill, vervain, mint, rosemary, thyme, and a wild expanse of parsley. She was down on her knees wearing thick green gardening gloves, weeding and picking out slugs and putting them in a plastic bag. Mrs. Whitaker was very tender-hearted when it came to slugs. She would take them down to the back of her garden, which bordered on the railway line, and throw them over the fence. <laughs> she cut some parsley for the salad. There was a cough behind her. Galahad stood there, tall and beautiful, his armor glinting in the morning sun. In his arms, he held a long package wrapped in oiled leather. I'm back, he said. Hello, said Mrs. Whitaker. She stood up rather slowly and took off her gardening gloves. Well, she said, now you're here, you might as well make yourself useful. She gave him the plastic bag full of slugs and told him to tip the slugs out over the back of the fence. He did. Then they went into the kitchen. Tea or lemonade, she asked. Whatever you're having, Galahad said. Mrs. Whitaker took a jug of her homemade lemonade from the fridge and sent Galahad outside to pick a sprig of mint. She selected two tall glasses. She washed the mint carefully and put a few leaves in each glass, then poured the lemonade. Is your horse outside, she said. Oh, yes, his name is Grizel. And you've come a long way, I suppose. Oh, a very long way. I see, said Mrs. Whitaker. She took a blue plastic basin from under the sink and half filled it with water. Galahad took it to Grizel. He waited while the horse drank and brought the empty basin back to Mrs. Whitaker. Now, she said, I suppose you're still after the grail. I still do I seek the sand grail, he said. He picked up the leather package from the floor, put it down on the tablecloth and unwrapped it. For it, I offer you this. It was a sword, its blade almost four feet long. There were words and symbols traced elegantly along the length of the blade. The hilt was worked in silver and gold and a large jewel was set in the pommel. It's very nice, said Mrs. Whitaker doubtfully. This, said Galahad, is the sword Balmung, forged by Wayland Smith in the dawn times. Its twin is Flamberge. Who wears it is unconquerable in war and invincible in battle. Who wears it is incapable of a cowardly act or an ignoble one. Set in its pommel is the sardonyx burcone, which protects its possessor from poison slipped into wine or ale and from treachery of friends. Mrs. Whitaker appeared at the sword. It must be very sharp, she said after a while. <laughs> it can slice a falling hair in twain. Nay, it could slice a sunbeam, said Galahad proudly. Well, then maybe you ought to put it away, said Mrs. Whitaker. <laughs> Don't you want it? Galahad seemed disappointed. No, thank you, said Mrs. Whitaker. It occurred to her that her late husband Henry would have quite liked it. He would have hung it on the wall in his study next to the stuffed carp he caught in Scotland and pointed it out to visitors. Galahad rewrapped the oiled leather around the sword Balmung and tied it up with cord. He sat there disconsolate. Mrs. Whitaker made him some cream cheese and cucumber sandwiches for the journey back and wrapped them in greaseproof paper. She gave him an apple for Grizel. He seemed very pleased with both gifts. She waved them both. Goodbye. That afternoon, she took the bus down to the hospital to see Mrs. Perkins, who was still in with her hip, poor dear. Mrs. Whitaker took her some homemade fruitcake, although she left out the walnuts from the recipe. Goes, Mrs. Perkins' teeth weren't what they used to be. <laughs> she watched a little television that evening and had an early night. On Tuesday, the postman called. Mrs. Whitaker was up in the box room at the top of the house doing a spot of tidying and taking each step slowly and carefully. She didn't make it downstairs in time. The postman had left her a message which said that he'd tried to deliver a package, but no one was home. Mrs. Whitaker sighed. She put the message into her handbag and went down to the post office. The package was from her niece, Shirelle, in Sydney, Australia. It contained photographs of her husband, Wallace, and her two daughters, Dixie and Violet, and a conch shell packed in cotton wool. Mrs. Whitaker had a number of ornamental shells in her bedroom. Her favourite had a view of the Bahamas done on it in enamel. It had been a gift from her sister Ethel, who had died in 1983. 
She put the shell and the photographs in her shopping bag. Then, seeing that she was in the area, she stopped in at the Oxfam shop on her way home. Hello, Mrs. W, said Marie. Mrs. Whitaker stared at her. Marie was wearing lipstick. Possibly not the best shade for her, nor particularly expertly applied, but thought Mrs. Whitaker that would come with time. And a rather smart skirt. It was a great improvement. Oh, hello, dear, said Mrs. Whitaker. There was a man in here last week asking about that thing you bought, that little metal cup thing. I told him where to find you. You don't mind, do you? No, dear, said Mrs. Whitaker. He found me. He was really dreamy, really, really dreamy, sighed Marie. Wistfully, I could have gone for him. And he had a big white horse and all. <laughs> Marie concluded. She was standing up straighter as well, Mrs. Whitaker noted approvingly. On the bookshelf, Mrs. Whitaker found a new Mills and Boone novel, Her Majestic Passion. Although she hadn't yet finished the two she bought on her last visit. She picked up the copy of Romance and Legend of Chivalry and opened it. It smelled musty. Ex Libris Fisher was neatly handwritten at the top of the first page in red ink. She put it down where she'd found it. When she got home, Galahad was waiting for her. He was giving the neighborhood children rides on Grizel's back up and down the street. <laughs> I'm glad you're here, she said. I've got some cases that need moving. <laughs> She showed him up to the box room at the top of the house. He moved all the old suitcases for her so she could get to the cupboard at the back. It was very dusty up there. She kept him up there most of the afternoon, moving things around while she dusted. Galahad had a cut on his cheek and he held one arm a little stiffly. They talked a little while she dusted and tidied. Mrs. Whitaker told him about her late husband, Henry, and how the life insurance had paid the house off. And how she had all these things, but no one really to leave them to. No one but Ronald, really, and his wife only liked modern things. She told him how she'd met Henry during the war, when he was in the ARP, and she hadn't closed the kitchen blackout curtains all the way. And about the sixpenny dances they went to in the town, and how they'd gone to London when the war had ended, and she'd had her first drink of wine. Galahad told Mrs. Whitaker about his mother, Elaine who was flighty and no better than she should have been, and something of a witch to boot. And his grandfather, King Pellis, who was well-meaning, although at best a little vague, and of his youth in the castle of Blion, the joyous isle, and his father, whom he knew as Le Chevalier Malfay, who was more or less completely mad. And in was, in reality, Lancelot du Lac, greatest of knights in disguise, and bereft of his wit and of Galahad's days as a young squire in Camelot. At five o'clock, Mrs. Whitaker surveyed the box room and decided that it met with her approval. And then she opened the window so the room could air, and they went downstairs to the kitchen where she put on the kettle. Galahad sat down at the kitchen table. He opened the leather purse at his waist and took out a round white stone. It was about the size of a cricket ball. My lady, he said. This is for you when you give me the sand grail. Mrs. Whittaker picked up the stone, which was heavier than it looked, and held it up to the light. It was milkily translucent, and deep inside it, flecks of silver glittered and glinted in the late afternoon sunlight. It was warm to the touch. Then, as she held it, a strange feeling crept over her. Deep inside, she felt stillness, a sort of peace, Serenity, that's what it was. She felt serene. Reluctantly, she put the stone back on the table. It's very nice, she said. That is the philosopher's stone, which our forefather Noah hung in the ark to give light when there was no light. It can transform base metals into gold and has certain other properties, Galad told her proudly. And that isn't all. There's more. Here. From the leather bag, he took an egg and handed it to her. It was the size of a goose egg, and it was shiny black in color, mottled with scarlet and white. When Mrs. Whittaker touched it, the hairs on the back of her neck prickled. Her immediate impression was one of incredible heat and freedom. She heard the crackling of distant fires, and for a fraction of a second, she seemed to feel herself far above the world, swooping and diving on wings of flame. 
She put the egg down on the table next to the philosopher's stone. This is the egg of the phoenix, said Galad. From far Araby it comes. One day it will hatch out into the phoenix bird itself. And when its time comes, the bird will build a nest of flame, lay its egg, and die to be reborn in flame in a later age of the world. I thought that's what it was, said Mrs. <laughs> And last of all, ladies, said Galahad, I have brought you this. He drew it from his pouch and gave it to her. It was an apple apparently carved from a single ruby on an amber stem. A little nervously, she picked it up. It was soft to the touch, deceptively so. Her fingers bruised it and ruby-colored juice from the apple ran down Mrs. Whittaker's hand. The kitchen filled almost imperceptibly, magically, with a smell of summer fruit, of raspberries, peaches, strawberries, and red currants, as if from a great way away she heard distant voices raised in song and far music on the air. It is one of the apples of the Hesperides, said Galahad quietly. One bite from it will heal any illness or wound, no matter how deep. A second bite restores youth and beauty, and a third bite is said to grant eternal life. Mrs. Whittaker licked the sticky juice from her hand. It tasted like fine wine. There was a moment then when it all came back to her, how it was to be young, to have a firm, slim body that would do whatever she wanted it to do, to run down a country lane for the simple, unladylike joy of running. To have men smile at her just because she was herself and happy about it. Mrs. Whittaker looked at Sir Galahad most comely of all nights, sitting fair and noble in her small kitchen. She caught her breath. And that's all I have brought for you, said Galahad. They weren't easy to get either. <laughs> Mrs. Whittaker put the ruby fruit down on her kitchen table. She looked at the philosopher's stone and the egg of the phoenix and the apple of life, and she walked into her parlor and looked on the mantelpiece at the little china basset hound and the holy grail and the photograph of her late husband Henry, shirtless, smiling and eating an ice cream in black and white almost 40 years away. She went back into the kitchen. The kettle had begun to whistle. She poured a little steaming water into the teapot, swirled it around, poured it out, then she added two spoonfuls of tea and one for the pot, and poured in the rest of the water. All this she did in silence. She turned to Galahad then, and she looked at him. Put that apple away, she told Galahad firmly. You shouldn't offer things like that to old ladies. It isn't proper. She paused then, but I'll take the other two. She continued after a moment's thought, that'll look nice on the mantelpiece, and two for one's fair, or I don't know what is. Galahad beamed. He put the ruby apple into his leather pouch, then he went down on one knee and kissed Mrs. Whittaker's hand. Stop that, said Mrs. Whittaker. <laughs> she poured them both cups of tea after getting out the very best china, which was only for special occasions. They sat in silence, drinking their tea. When they'd finished their tea, they went into the parlor. Galahad crossed himself and picked up the grail. Mrs. Whittaker arranged the egg in the stone where the grail had been. The egg kept tipping to one side, and she propped it up against the little china dog. They do look very nice, said Mrs. Whittaker. Yes, agreed Galahad. They look very nice. Can I give you anything to eat before you go back? He shook his head. Some fruit cake, she said. You may not think you want any now, but you'll be glad of it in a few hours' time. <laughs> and you should probably use the facilities. <laughs> now give me that and I'll wrap it up for you. She directed him to the small toilet at the end of the hall and went into the kitchen holding the grail. She had some old Christmas wrapping paper in the pantry and she wrapped the grail in it and tied the package with twine. Then she cut a large slice of fruit cake, put it in a brown paper bag along with a banana, a slice of processed cheese in silver foil. Galahad came back from the toilet. She gave him the paper bag and the holy grail. <laughs> then she went up on tiptoes and kissed him on the cheek. You're a nice boy, she said. You take care of yourself. He hugged her and she shooed him out of the kitchen and out of the back door and she shut the door behind him. 
She poured herself another cup of tea and cried quietly into a Kleenex, while the sound of hoofbeats echoed down Hawthorne Crescent. On Wednesday, Mrs. Whittaker stayed in all day. On Thursday, she went down to the post office to collect her pension, then she stopped in at the Oxfam shop. The woman on the till was new to her. Where's Marie? asked Mrs. Whittaker. The woman on the till, who had blue rinsed grey hair and blue spectacles that went up into a diamante point, shook her head and shrugged her shoulders. She went off with a young man, she said, on a horse. <laughs> Ask you. I mean, I meant to be down in the Heathfield shop this afternoon. I had to get my Johnny to run me up here while we find someone else. Oh, said Mrs. Well, it's nice that she's found herself a young man. Nice for her, maybe, said the lady of the till. But some of us were meant to be in the Heathfield this afternoon. On a shelf near the back of the shop, Mrs. Whitaker found a tarnished old silver container with a long spout. It had been priced at 60 pence, according to the little paper label stuck to the side. It looked like a little flattened, elongated teapot. She picked out a Mills and Boone novel <laughs> that she hadn't read before. It was called Her Singular Love. She took the book and the silver container up to the woman on the till. 65p, dear, said the woman, picking up the silver object, staring at it. Funny old thing, isn't it? Came in this morning, had writing carved along the side in blocky old Chinese characters and an elegant arching handle. Some kind of oil can, I suppose. <laughs> no, it's not an oil can, said Mrs. Whitaker, who knew exactly what it was. It's a lamp. There was a small metal finger ring, unornamented, tied to the handle of the lamp with brown twine. Actually, said Mrs. Whittaker, on second thoughts, I think I'll just have the book. <laughs> she paid her five pence for the novel, put the lamp back where she found it, in the back of the shop. After all, Mrs. Whittaker reflected as she walked home. It wasn't as if she had anywhere to put it. <laughs> Christina Pickles performed Chivalry by Neil Gaiman. Though you don't always know where to find treasures, you can definitely find them on our show. I'm Meg Wallitzer. The plot reminds me a bit of a mashup of the kind of British TV shows I love. The historical reenactments, as well as the dramas about a mild old woman, a pensioner, as the British might say, living in her cozy flat, who meets someone very different from herself. Tea is sipped, and moving moments transpire. But there's a third kind, too, the fantasy kind. Worlds don't necessarily collide, but at least in this case, they gently but firmly bump up against each other to very pleasing effect. So there you have it. Three stories about setting out to find something and winding up in a different place, with a different life, or with a different idea about what matters. Though a writer may not think about anything that happens in their story beyond the last page, instead creating a perfect world inside a snow globe of their own design, the reader often has at least a moment of wondering what's next for these people now that everything is different. As for the last story, I know you want to leave right now to comb your attic and see if your Aunt Tilda really does have the Shroud of Turin under the bath mat and then call Antiques Roadshow. So go. I don't mind. My work here is done. And thanks for joining me for Selected Shorts. Selected Shorts is produced by Jennifer Brennan. Our literary team is Matthew Love, Drew Richardson, and Vivienne Woodward. Our director of marketing is Mary Shimkin. Our radio producers are Sarah Montague and Jenny Falcon. The readings are recorded by Miles B. Smith. Our programs presented at the Getty Center in Los Angeles are recorded by Phil Richards. Our mix engineer for this episode was Dennis Jacobson. Our theme music is David Peterson's That's the Deal, performed by the Deerdorf Peterson Group. Selected Shorts is supported by the Dungannon Foundation, creator of the Ray Award for the short story. Support is also provided by the Howard Gilman Foundation, the Schubert Foundation, the Blanchette Hooker Rockefeller Fund, the Achelis and Bodman Foundation, the Henry Nias Foundation, the Sharina Endowment Fund, the Fan Fox and Leslie R. Samuels Foundation, the Michael Tuck Foundation, the Vida Foundation, the Axe Houghton Foundation, and the Grodzins Fund. 
Selected Shorts is also made possible with public funds from the New York State Council on the Arts with the support of Governor Kathy Hochul and the New York State Legislature. Additional support is provided by the Isaiah Sheffer Fund for new initiatives. Symphony Space thanks our generous supporters, including our board of directors, producer circle, and members who make our programs possible with their annual support. Selected Shorts is produced and distributed by Symphony Space.